Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm your host, Chloe Lula. This week, we have a guest who is normally averse to the spotlight. Fabric resident and Houghton Festival founder Craig Richards, arguably one of UK dance music's most respected DJs. Richards has played the London Institution every Saturday for 18 years, DJing alongside fellow household artists like Ricardo Villalobos, Nicholas Lutz, and Ben UFO, and profoundly shaping the canon that's defined the space in its programming week in and week out. Richards is keenly attuned to other DJs in the flow of the night, and he's definitely not indebted to one particular style or genre. In an RA feature from 2019, Ray Philp, who wrote the piece, described his sound as, quote, intergalactic space metal that goes far beyond techno, house, or electro, and usually strays away from easy melodies or vocal hooks. Richard mixes weird records, classics, and a lot of deep, headsy tunes that he tirelessly seeks out every week to show to the fabric crowd. In this interview with RA news editor Carlos Hawthorne, he sat down and talked about what makes a good record and the DJ's role as a bridge between the past and the present. Well, the juxtaposition is, is the interesting thing. In a way, how far we've gone and how far we haven't gone. You know, the fact that a good record from 20 years ago is just as good as a new record made now and placing that music next to each other is, is the role of the DJ. You know, what well, it is in my case anyway. As time goes on, I don't really know what other DJs do, but I only know what I do. And that's, I've always been obsessed with that in the same way of sort of a, a pair, an old 40s shirt and, a, and a, new, a new pair of trousers. He also talks about some of his other endeavors beyond the booth. He calls himself a dreamer, not a businessman, who needs to keep his attention moving between a multitude of creative disciplines. Interestingly, Richards isn't just a DJ, but a prolific painter whose art can be seen all around the grounds of the idyllic festival he started a few years ago, Houghton, which is set in the English countryside. He also talks about the incredibly complicated art of playing vinyl, especially at festivals, his perception of the overemphasis of DJs in the dance music ecosystem, and much, much more. His lack of ego and deep appreciation for the crowd and the scene that supports artists is so refreshing in an era that seems to put the spotlight on the headliner DJ. So this was a really refreshing conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. And without further ado, here is the great Craig Richards. Hi, Craig. Here we are at your London base. Can you like just tell me a little bit about this space? Well, it's uh, it's where I live when I'm in London, you know, and lived here for like 12 years. I've lived in London for 19, since 1987, but moved out of London a while ago. But I still need a, a strong connection with London, and London's ultimately my home. I live, I live in Dorset, but um, this is a bit of a messy little record storage holding unit. <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah. Welcome. Anyway, welcome. Sorry, it's a bit of a claustrophobic space with all the microphones and cameras. Yeah, I mean, are these records ones that you're like more likely to be playing? When- Mostly. I mean, as we were saying earlier, you know, I, I've lost touch of my record collection. Really, I mean, I'm in touch with the current pieces, but as for the past, it, it I let it run out of control, which was foolish in a way. Now, I, as I, I it, during the lockdown, I tried to imagine sorting them out and spoke to people about it alphabetical order or how how would how would one do it you know genre and just agreed to sort of carry on and proceed and in many ways it's gone on i mean i've been collecting records for well 35 years now so also there's quite a few of them i've never really stopped i've always bought as many records as i could afford and it, it's turned into a muddle there are areas where i know where things are but for the most part, it's, it's it's fun to sort of go in and find records that I haven't played, I mean, for a long time. And the human memory versus the catalogue, I suppose, in a sense, on the basis that they're all good ones, one should be able to sort of pluck at random and come up with something. And I do enjoy that process, actually. I suppose then then you also have the digital collection, which is, is definitely a part of, of my collection. It's just keeping hold of it, I, I guess. It, it's certainly run out of control, but there's some system or you know something within the madness that makes it work actually in terms of dj gigs you you play less than you imagine i mean i I just played at fabric this weekend and i took an enormous amount of records with me and sort of if in doubt take your whole collection you know it's actually really what you end up playing is quite a few 
records you know 12 per hour if we're if we're talking five minutes so you know it's uh, that's funny that you're given the amount of t- you know hours you've put into playing at fabric that you're still sort of taking too many you'd have thought you'd have it down to a fine art by now no i haven't really got anything down to a fine art i don't think but i do also like the idea of options you know if it goes this way we can take it this way and you know i think the addiction really lies in the record buying and with the record buying comes the quantity and from the quantity you choose how many or what you take with you and there's there are records that you take that you never play i mean i've done tours of america where i've taken records and never played them at any of six gigs and you bring them back and it's just sort of transportation in a way you know you it's really based on the idea of options, I think. Yeah, you know. Yeah, having the option is important. Yeah, if it goes that way. You know? yeah, yeah. And so before every gig or like set of gigs in London or wherever, would you, you know, dive into your bulk and Dorset and sort of go through a bunch? And I'm constantly doing that, and this I'm constantly plucking things from it throughout the week or the month. There's always sort of movement within the collection, but and and, I'm, and I I know this whenever my records are moved in any way, I realise how how systematic it is and you do have a system within this within the bulk of those or the quantity of those records i've always wanted to play old and new records that's always been something i've been interested in and so whilst you're representing that concept and that that idea you're you're doing okay you know i think it's lovely to to mix old and new records and you know by constantly buying records and constantly looking into the past you you're probably coming up with that you know yeah what is it about the old and the new combination? Well, the juxtaposition is is the interesting thing. In a way, how far we've gone and how far we haven't gone. You know, the fact that a good record from 20 years ago is just as good as a new record made now and placing that music next to each other is, is the role of the DJ. You know, well, it is in my case anyway. As time goes on, I don't really know what other DJs do, but I only know what I do. And that's I've always been obsessed with that in the same way of sort of a, a, a pair, an old 40s shirt and a, and a new a new pair of trousers you know it's, it's it's the same same concept really if you can make it work you know i i just don't think i don't i've never enjoyed the idea of new music as a as the only way you know when people give you 10 new tracks so then they're new and or you know people constantly talk about new music is it's, it's um it's it, it can't possibly be the old way you have to look to the past and we're living in a world that does look to the future and of course it should but my default setting is to always relate it to the park and and i think that's a an enjoyable and interesting process for the mind so when you're playing are you like you specifically like doing new entire blends like i like to i mean it or it just happens i mean you know people ask you what's this one it's nice to say it's an old one but it's also nice to say it's a new one you know i, I don't think it's i don't think it's relevant i think it's i suppose it's a common thread running through what you do you know and if that thread continues to run through what you do as a DJ or as an artist, that's it. that's that that makes for a coherent and believable system, and and I think that that system is must be believable to the artist or the DJ himself. You know, I like the idea of playing old and new tracks alongside each other and sort of finding common themes and yeah, perhaps not being able to tell. Yeah, I think I've always loved that. I think it's really important. So you just played a fabric with Francesco Delgado. Yeah, to back. What's what's special about going back to back with with him? Well, it's um, I think I'm only just we've only just done it recently. So, I suppose and like anyone you play back to back with, it's a non-competitive creative zone that ensures that both people are happy and both people are glorious within what they do, and 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 actually that the music is the most important thing. It's it's always been like that. I I don't like the idea of um, competition in any form of life, and with him it's. There's no competition. I think it's about inspiration, really. You inspire each other. We, uh, I think that any of the, the the successful back-to-back experiences I've had are, are about um, spontaneity and not planning or talking about what you're going to do. I, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone about what we're going to do. So I think the product is the answer, isn't it? I mean, the product is the outcome. So with him, it's very easy. We have similar interests and I think and heritage, so... It's quite straightforward to do it, really. And did you find a sort of interesting push and pull between you? Yeah, always. I mean, I think my first sort of back-to-back experience with, was with Lee Burridge, really, when we were doing the Tyrant thing, and it was based on not having much time. I think the first time we decided to do it is because we only were sort of sharing an hour, and we just said, well, let's just play together. I, I would say I think the back-to-back thing has sort of become uh, a little too fizzy, and there's it, it, a, lot, a lot of 
you know, everyone's doing it, and it's it, obviously it's a marketing thing, and it's it's all about the outcome sonically. You know, if it, if it, if it works and it's a good thing, then then do it again. But if it doesn't, then don't do it again. You know, it's it, it's not always right to imagine so and so playing with so and so. You know, it, it's it's not to be not to be messed with really in a way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the marketing angle is this is going to be doubly as good. In, in principle, yeah, it could be yes. <laughs> So how often are you playing at Fabric these days? Well, certainly less than I used to. I mean, the more I look back on it, it was a, a, a really strong commitment to play every week, and but it was also a joy, you know. I, for the first 10 years, certainly I played every week, and I had the great luxury of playing before and after people and also inviting people to play uh, alongside me, which was an um, incredible privilege. It's certainly in terms of how much I learned from those experiences. But I play less now. I mean, it's 25 years uh, it's been open next year. Mm-hmm. So for someone who vowed never to have a job, it's, it's certainly, if not a job, a commitment. But I do enjoy it because the equipment and the experience is wonderful. I can play records there comfortably. I don't have to worry about the sound. I help design the sound and the booth. And, you know, it's, it's, I suppose it's home in a way, if that's the right word. And I do enjoy it immensely. And I suppose like lots of things in life, nowadays I'd, I'd enjoy doing them less um, and I need to do them less so it, it, better that I play once every two months and really bring the people with me that I want to play with and, and do something impactful than play every week as I did I certainly think, don't think that would have been sustainable but it was an enormous um, commitment and luxury as I said to play every week and to, and to be able to bookend what was going on and define what was going on in, in, in a days of having a residency I don't know whether there are there are, of course, there are residents, but I'm not sure there are residencies anymore, like whether they exist anymore. And I, I do count myself very, very lucky to have learned my craft within that environment and within the, the, a very loose confine and a very open script. You know, it was a, a real joy for me, and it's certainly made me the the DJ I am. I wouldn't be able to actually really define what that was, but it certainly has. It certainly allowed me enormous amounts of freedom and. The, the fact that I was playing after Jeff Mills or after Richie Horton or after Derek Carter or, or before all of those people or you know and, and, and my record buying was based around what I was doing it was you know, I was comfortable to buy three hours of, of a beautiful warm up to play before Richie Horton or three hours of, of something interesting to play at the end you know and, and I'm constantly aware and grateful of, of that journey personal journey Has the distance from fabrics or change your experience with playing there at all? No, not necessarily, really. I mean, I, it'd be wrong to think that I only I only played there. You know, I was always running around. There was Sunday became a day, so that that sort of added a an extra day in terms of uh, the weekend. So there was Sunday gigs in Europe, and I always played in in Europe on Friday, never too far away. And I always did American tours. I always played in Japan, so I, I travelled as much as I could manage emotionally physically and uh, you know spiritually and I've always been doing other things so I, I, I was I was always aware that DJing was a part of my creative process or practice if you like and that I needed time to be able to paint and make music as well so it's, it's about distributing one's time if you like and traveling and touring if you like is is incredibly demanding and and even when I was younger it was it was demanding and so I, I think limiting those experiences has been has been very good for me as a, as a person and also necessary. I mean, as you get older, you you do have seemingly less time, but certainly less energy, and 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 kicking the hell out of yourself on tour isn't is not really necessarily the right thing to do if you if your aim is to also paint and and and, and make music and be creative. So was it a decision that you've been thinking about for a long time to step away from fabric or was it a quick decision? I think it happened naturally, really. I think there was a period where it felt like it was the right thing to do. And, you know, I suppose in a way I made my name by staying in one place and I am, my name is synonymous with fabric and that will always be so, I'm sure. But it was a, it was a of great benefit for me to step out and to play with different people and and also to try different things. And But I've, I'd never really wanted to DJ so much you know it's, I, I'd look at some people's schedules and if it would frighten the hell out of me to be traveling and touring and DJing so much I, the, the impact on the human is incredible if you if you if you work if you work too hard mm. and certainly if you're asking your 
yourself to be creative and thoughtful and and some of some of that creative work needs to come from thought then you, then you really need time and if that time is spent with your head in your hands exhausted from touring then I don't think you're at your best so I, I think I realized that quite early on so in terms of the the DJing you're doing now sort of what's guiding your decisions um it's the same as always really I mean I, I love being in London London's obviously an incredibly important place but I also love traveling you know and and I, I I like to um play at smaller and smaller gigs and bigger things I did I played at Time War a few years ago with Ricardo and it was an enormous gig you know and I do actually enjoy this is I play, we're playing the same music in a way it's nice to play in a big room and see how the music fills the room but it's also nice to play in an intense space a smaller space somewhere like um, the Lion and Lamb in London I really enjoy but Closer, I played. Actually, I, I played it closer the week before the, this hideous war broke out, and that was a that's a wonderful place to play. You know, where you have an, an informed and enthusiastic audience, somewhere where you can feel comfortable to go where you need to go. These are the gigs that I've been chasing, really. And I, 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 I suppose, if I'm honest, smaller gigs have always been more rewarding than bigger gigs. But I've I've always been happy that the phone's ringing and people are asking me to play. I mean, I, I have a relatively modest approach to what I'm doing and uh, you know the fact that the fact that I'm still being asked to play and I'm still in relative demand is 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 is, is, is nothing but a joy to me really uh you mentioned the lion and land there which is not far from here can you sort of tell us about this space I suppose one thing I should say is that lots of people seem to think I own it I don't actually own it but um I, I just play there a lot because I really enjoy it and I feel like I've played some of my some I've made some of my best work and play some of my greatest sets in there in fact I went there when it was sort of um, a crazy after-party space and it sort of refined itself into something a bit more manageable now. But it's a, a place of freedom and I, I enjoy I enjoy the booth and I enjoy the size of it and I, I you know, organised lots of different things in there. I played with Andrew a couple of times, Calibre, had some very special nights in there and it holds a really strong place in my heart. I suppose if I was to summarise its worth for me is... Is that I feel comfortable in there, and I can. It's small enough to move around, and I can. It's impossible to make a mistake, and you can really flirt with the idea of DJing and and sound and, and intensity and tempo, and you can't really get it wrong. And it's someone at my, the the point where I am. It's 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 the perfect sort of um, it's the perfect stage in a way. You know, does it feel nice mm-hmm. having a sort of very close relationship with another club in London? Yes, I mean, I'll always have a great regard for. London and what it is and I'm very much I'm half a Londoner half of my family's from London Poplar and Bow and so um and my father was from Wales so I guess I'm a Welsh Cockney in a way but I you know I love being in London it's it is definitely my home and I've got some of my greatest moments have happened in London much as I love New York and Mexico City and Berlin and Paris and you know all of the places I've had great pleasure in visiting London is always my anchor point and my HQ, if you like. In terms of your digging for music, has stepping away from fabric changed your habits at all? I mean, you mentioned there that you know you'd, you'd have you'd be playing before Richie Hoy and you'd be digging for music sort of based around that. Has not having that sort of weekly routine, that regularity, changed the way you look for music at all? It certainly hasn't changed the way I look for music. I mean, in terms of research for music, it's never been easier. There's so much. You know, I started buying records when I was fourteen, probably, and. There was no information about that apart from Top of the Pops or what little you might hear on the radio. And now, in terms of research, it couldn't be better. It's wonderful for for the music enthusiast, really. And and then I suppose you have to work out how much money you have and how many records you can buy and whether you want to buy digital music from Bandcamp or however you acquire music is up to you. But in terms of one's collection, it's it's pretty full and burgeoning right now. You know, I have to be careful of... The records I certainly, as I said earlier, the records I certainly have to be careful of because it's a storage issue. But the reality is, I, I buy, I've always bought as many records as I could afford, really. And 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 I suppose playing every week at Fabric did change it a little bit. But I, you know, I'm not always buying records that I would play to use as as a DJ. You know, there's, there's I suppose you call it home listening, if you like. You know, and and my tastes have changed and evolved as time's gone on. But no, I still. I'm still a hunter forager and I still enjoy immensely finding music. I'm still irritated by not knowing music when people went, you know, by missing music, if you like, in a way. That, that, that is part of the driving force to any addiction. 
no, I, I enjoy it immensely, and I think I, I don't. I think if that had, if that had faded in in me, then I that hunger to find new music and to discover new music being anything that's new to you, it, and new music could be old music. If if that had if that had faded in me, then I I possibly wouldn't be still working. And you know, I kind of feel like I'm just getting the hang of it, really, in terms of like finding it and then playing it and uh, sharing it as as a process. I do really feel like I've. I'm just about getting there, really, in a way. And I think that was one of the things about the pandemic and the, the cut-off of the pandemic was I felt like I, an old boxer that had been pulled out of the ring really suddenly and just as I was sort of winning, you know, and it was, kind of, it was a really harsh period, actually, that that time because it forced contemplation in me in, in terms of shall I stop now, should I just become a painter or maybe that's it. And actually the answers were not that. It was it was a case of, no, I definitely want to carry on and I I felt denied the final chapters if you like or didn't deny the progress in what I've been doing because I don't really I suppose it's like a mole pushing earth behind me I don't I, don't, I never really thought too much about it as it's going on but that period gave me time to really assess where I was and where I wanted you know how much I'd done and how much more I wanted to do you know and I think I suppose one of the joys of getting older is realizing that time's running out and you you have a lot to do you know whether you're losing Freud and you're you're on your last paintings, or, or me as a DJ thinking I've, I'm I'm still just getting the knack of it. You know, it's it's a good way to approach it. I think, or it has been for me anyway. So, what were the sort of findings from that period? Well, I'd, more <laughs> I think <laughs> uh, I certainly realised I mean, during that period I painted a lot. So I, I certainly confirmed that I must share some of the paintings I've made, and 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 actually, and 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 also some of the music I've made. I should. It's an important process to finish things and to share it with people. Um, it's not just enough to do it for yourself, which I think has been a symptom of the past. I've got that sort of illness where you can't finish things or you're never satisfied. So it's been a sort of an insular thing sponsored by uh, sponsored by my work as a DJ. It's meant that I've, I mean, I've got a studio at home, two studios, a painting studio and and a music studio. So the, the money earned from DJing has allowed me to self-sponsor in a sense and it's allowed me to not have to share things with other people. But I think I realised in that um, intense period of isolation that it's important to share things with other people. And so I think, I, I suppose I'd like to think that was part of the future. Um, that, um, and so it wasn't just DJing, it was a creative process in, it, it, as a whole is important. So... I guess I need to expose myself <laughs> rather than be so private. <laughs> you mentioned your painting then. Obviously, you famously went to Central St. Martins mm. and studied art and, yeah, been painting for many years. I mean, how, when did that into your life and has it been a constant? I mean, I studied architecture for a bit, civil engineering and architecture in the beginning. I sort of swam back to art. I did a foundation course for a year in Bournemouth and then went to St. Martins, as it was called. It wasn't Central St. Martins quite then. Right. And then did, did an MA at the Royal College in, in illustration. Really, I just wanted to move to London and go to art school to be around people that I could um, express myself around, you know, and that's how it was in those days, in a way, art school. It wasn't quite the way it is now. Painting has, be has become the, the medium that I've settled on, and I, I am pretty seri serious about it, but it's in a way it's a glorified hobby. As I said, up, to, up till now, I haven't really shown much of my work, you know, I take it very seriously, but it was in in, in any in many ways it was an experience rather than an education. Mm. Um, art school was very different back in the, the, in those days. In, we we had we had drunk drunk lecturers and you know a, a, a free curriculum. You know I don't I don't know that it's like that anymore. You had to work hard for sure, but but you, as long as you were doing something, it was okay. And it was a different environment than it is now. I I count myself very lucky to have to have gone to art school in you know I, I went to St Martin's in 1987 landed in London acid house uh, a new drug a new feeling it was a wonderful time incredibly wonderful time to be in London and a very innocent time if, if I look back on it a time of sort of innocence for sure did you ever want to be a painter I certainly didn't want to be a DJ I don't think um I don't know what I wanted to be I, don't, I think I was just happy in the moment really I realized when I left college that and I've got a studio. I had a studio in West London, underneath, underneath near Westbourne Park Studios, underneath the, the Westway. But um, 
and I realised that being being on my own in the studio was not the same as being at art school and moving around the departments, working in the darkroom, working on silkscreen printing and being around people that you can sort of bounce off was over and suddenly you were in a studio on your own and working away. I realised that that wasn't where I wanted to be. Certainly then, I mean, now I, I'm actually quite happy to be on my own working away. But then certainly it was much, I was in a much more sociable mood and not not didn't want to be sort of isolated with just my work. I don't, I don't think I've ever really wanted to be anything. I don't think I've had that. I'm a very ambitious person, but I've n- never been quite clear about where to put that ambition in a way. And it never, never certainly had a... I think it, perhaps it comes from when I was at school and being asked, what do you want to be, when it was only the options at that time were only sort of uh, farmer, accountant, lawyer, soldier, sailor or something. You know, there was... There wasn't photographer, art director, graphic designer, DJ. None of these things existed, and all the options of what you wanted to be were so dreary that actually you 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 always tick the box of I well I just want to be free. I just want to, I don't want to tick the box. What happens if I don't tick the box? You know, I am a product of that thinking in a way, and I still don't know what I want to be, and that maybe is what drives me forward, in a way. What is your routine with painting? How often? Oh well, when I, I suppose it would be when I can. At the moment, I don't have a routine with painting because I'm constantly working on how to, you know, DJing again in, you know, at the weekends. So there isn't much spare time. I dream of having uh, lots of time to to paint in a, in, in, you know, a daily process and actually establishing some sort of language with mark making and re- repeating oneself within the work. It's it's never really quite got there. It's the same in the studio, but working with music, ideally you would work every day. It's not always possible. So I suppose it's catch it while you can. I draw quite a lot, you know, I'd, but I don't always get the paintbrushes out. I'm, I'm pretty much constantly drawing. And I suppose in a way I'm, I'm better at drawing. I studied illustration. I, I think I'm more fascinated with painting, but better better at drawing. Um, so, it, yeah, the answer to the question is I, I, I do it when I can. I don't sleep so much. I mean, I try. I, I work I work hard. I work, I work a lot, and I don't see it as work, actually. But I'm constantly doing something, one thing or another, and I, my tension is I need to keep it moving so I'm quite happy to move from making a track to making a painting to do um, as many creative things as I can possibly manage in one day really. Are there sort of parallels from like being lost in a painting to being lost in a DJ set? Certainly especially if you don't have a plan I mean if if, if you just sort of start and see what happens which has mostly been the, the route I've taken of, of course it, it of course it works like that. So, of course, Houghton uh, is a space for you to combine your love of art and your love of music. Um, I'm sort of curious, before we sort of dive into how specifically, like, historically, what's been your relationship with, with festivals? I would say probably fairly poor, actually, um, in terms of sound, monitors, vinyl, toilets, food, claustrophobia, uh, attendees... Uh, the general public I don't know I mean you're quite bad actually before Houghton and actually though some of those things were the inspiration when I when I started doing it I was in my 50th year and so obviously at that time there's a great deal of contemplation and and thought goes into being 50 in terms of what you've done and where you're going it's a punctuation point and um I wasn't certainly wasn't planning to do a festival but but if if I was to embark on this journey then it would be about changing some of the things I didn't like and I suppose in a way focusing on the person that doesn't like festivals. You know, let's try and accommodate that person. I always remember speaking to Andrew and he was just, just hated festivals and mud and wellies and things like that and all the and, and all the sonic sonic disappointments I just described. And and you just, you just think, well, maybe we can focus on that, maybe perhaps we can change it. And, and so that is, that has been part of our, what do you call it now, mission statement, that's what you call it now, isn't it? And, you know, in terms of righting the wrongs, if you like, and making it possible for someone who doesn't like festivals to feel comfortable. Obviously, it's a three or four day commitment, which involves tents and travel and, and uh, um, you know, lack of sleep and all the rest of it. But I think the most important thing, um, my parents were both cabin crew in, for BIC in the 50s. And I learned a lot from them in terms of presentation, that everything had to be just right. 
because that you know they they were at that time you were cooking meals on the plane and and actually I suppose in in a way only the wealthy were travelling so everything had to be just so and and actually when I was younger that used to irritate me but as I got older that actually that that sort of commitment in in presentation has become really important to me and I think that actually that is the ethos of the festival is to try and present it present things as best as possible and and in you know in terms of uh, be it camping food obviously sound is the most important thing the whole experience can be adjusted and I think possibly my approach may uh I don't really think about money much so in terms of I think if you if you're running a business or a festival and your sole aim is to make money then you would approach it in a very very different way my approach is to make it as good as it possibly can be I don't really care about how much it costs I just want it to I just want it to be right and as pedantic as that as I may sound and that might be it's incredibly important to me and it just wouldn't be right otherwise so with the money that I we have it's a very unsponsored um, independent festival we got no money from the, that awful credit refund recovery fund thing where seemingly everyone got money and actually the most un- unimaginative got the most money we got nothing from that and that made me stronger and it's it so there's a point to prove and, and actually I believe we can do it we can do it really well and can just appeal to the people who want to come you know it's not for everyone the the program is not for everyone we're trying to present people in equal measure the, the most famous with the least famous there's so much to do and we're, we're only just starting you know, last year was year six we've only done three this will be year seven. We, we we considered last year to be year one. We're just starting, really. We had two wonderful years which defined the festival and um, also gathered a, a good amount of people who are committed followers and, and, and have been very loyal, rolled over their tickets and really supported us throughout this tempestuous, relentless catastrophe that it was. Because each year we, we, we thought we were going to do it. So it wasn't... If, if someone had said, oh, just take a couple of years off and don't worry about it, it would have been so much easier. We actually considered that we were doing it, and we tried to do it for, for each each of those years. And that's to say nothing of the the year before in our dress rehearsal where we cancelled we cancelled due to the weather. So it's been an, uh, certainly our the narratives thus far has, has has been interesting, and but but it's done nothing but power us up and make us more committed and and more determined and more certain about what we do want to do, and and also more certain about what we don't want to do. You know? Yeah. It's a long-term project. You know, it's a very long-term project. So we have time. Um, I've realised that. Certainly not a businessman, but I I do now realise that this is a long-term project. So the investment of time, culture, money, commitment, devotion is about patience. And I I think if there's one thing I learned about life from the pandemic is that patience is, is, is the key. Things will come back. Things will readjust or adjust or turn into something much more interesting, exciting and inspiring yeah i mean given your relationship with festivals originally did did you take some convincing to to take the project on not really i think i was being i think being 50 you are in in sort of a or approaching 50 or around that time you're in a vulnerable state so no it didn't take much it felt like it was a message from somewhere the cosmos it felt like i should do it and it felt it was the site was so amazing the Chumleys, as our landlords, potentially, you know, are, are, are so supportive. And it felt like an opportunity not to be missed. Last year was phenomenal. We're back on track and and, and, and super excited about where we're going, actually. Very proud of where we're going. Yeah. I mean, yeah, having such a bumpy ride must harden your resolve. And, and obviously there are tough moments, but it also... It becomes part of the folklore of the festival, yeah, part of the story of the festival. It does. It's quite an amazing story. It is. It is. I mean, I, I think... I, I, a couple of years ago, I would have said we were walking with a limp, but I don't think we are anymore. I think we're okay. That's really been the way we feel is the way the our trusted and followers feel. You know, there's been enormous support from the audience that we we gained from those first two years, and then, and then I think the the followers of the narrative, not not in sympathy, but but just in support and and belief actually. And so, I think that. If there was one thing that drove us forward, it was the support of our, our audience, really. I think that's what, if we hadn't have had that, certainly we would have conked out. I mean, were you ever close to pulling the plug on it? Oh, I don't know. Probably not. I've been so used to pulling the plug, so near to pulling the plug so many times in my life. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Because I think we're so far in. Mm. I think once you're once you're further in than 
you can imagine there's no real way of turning back really it's like a sort of a tunnel isn't it and and no you know why would we stop i mean there's so much to do and so much inspiration to be to to draw you mentioned the site there can you tell us a little bit about the estate and yeah the the owners rose and david chumley are the the owners and it's it's a, a, a wonderful site with a lake and and stages that we've been allowed to build actually one of the greatest joys is we've been actually, we've been able to certainly within the woods where they've allowed us to build stages and leave them there so we we're not in that kind of leave no trace thing where we have to come in and leave the quarry was already there we only had to just sort of enhance it it's a wonderful site um and they are incredibly supportive i mean they set the standard with the sculpture garden really the, the fact that they're the fact that they have this very very serious sculpture garden which is open to the public year on year out is very very inspiring and, and you know we've we've merely docked on to that in a sense you know and they've been nothing but uh, supportive and it couldn't be better really uh, in, in terms of our relationship with them and and we, I think we're pretty much there we've got the areas defined now and I don't think we really the idea is not necessarily to grow it is to it's to sort of define an, a, a loyal following and then and then sit there really in a way because I think if you visit somewhere once a year for 10 years you've only seen it 10 times so it's not about a sort of an aesthetic being boring or repetitive as such what we've always tried to do is 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 really sort of define certain areas and work out the capacity and work out the aesthetic and the feel of each area and then view it as a whole last year we had a new stage pinters which is sort of a jazz and experimental station we're very we're very proud about that in terms of the, the possibility for growth i suppose in a sense that the dance arenas if you like if, if you like uh, are fairly easy to imagine and confirm. Areas like Pinters are more 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 complicated in in in, in defining, and and there's a lot of growth, possible growth there. And, and the idea that festival goers should experience as many different types of music as possible, and hopefully the best experience you had from the artist or the band or the DJ that you'd never heard of. That's 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 certainly a focus point for us. You know, as much as we're presenting the best and the obvious, we're also pre presenting the unknown, and that's that's really a, for me that's very important in in terms of where it's going. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you've spoken out against um, modern club culture's obsession with DJs. I'm wondering, sort of, as a festival programmer who has to book a lot of DJs, how you sort of push against that? Well, I'm, I don't think I'm really trying to push against anything. I don't really remember speaking out against that as well, but I mean, I probably did. I mean, certainly an after party, I'm sure I might have done. But I think I think it's just a balance, isn't it? I mean, whilst it, there's there's there is certainly far too much emphasis on DJs, and uh, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna focus on something, surely it would be the music. The DJ is only the person playing the music, but also the the most important and constituent part of the process is 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 the crowd. The crowd is incredibly no crowd. There's no there's no party. And really what you're looking to is a party, whether it's a party in your flat or a big party you want to call a festival. It's the crowd that's important. And, and I think the crowd that we have at Houghton is very knowledgeable and very well informed. And I'm sure that's come from the internet and the, you know all these different areas where you c can become informed. I mean, I, you really have a very, very informed crowd now and they make, they make their own decisions. I don't think it's really about my opinions on DJs and music. I, th I just... I'm, I think as I've got older, I've just, I've just focused on what I do. You know, I, I've less idea what other people are playing. I don't really care what other people are playing. And I don't even really care about other festivals or I just know what I'm doing. So, and that's a better spot for me, really. It's a, a spot where it's a place where I'm less hurt and disappointed and disillusioned. I think I'm now in a better place in terms of speaking out about other things. I don't really um, think my opinion is that important, actually, in, in many ways. I think it's... Everyone has their own opinion and they should just crack on as they wish. Yeah, I guess what I was saying was like, how it definitely pushes against the sort of headliner culture where like everyone seems, you know, fairly equal. There's no huge fun on the bill or like... No, for sure. I suppose I suppose our journey, it's like a difference between a motorway and a sort of coastal path, really. I mean, you could argue it's... Houghton is about, without sounding too awful, it's about who's not playing and rather than who is. I don't know. It's just there's there's space for everyone, isn't there? You know, success comes in many forms. We're just trying to do our own thing. 
it's always a fabric or anything that I've ever been involved in. It's about I've been always been obsessed with creating a platform for for things to be heard, you know. And I I love the idea of the underdog. I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't, you know. And I think that there's so much music around. You've only got to go on Bandcamp to realise how much amazing music there is that is under celebrated. So whilst it's easy to celebrate the already celebrated, it's much more exciting and and interesting to celebrate the under-celebrated for me and put that next to the celebrated. Again, that's only this is just the way I do it. I certainly am not having a dig at um, the mountain that we live in the shadow of. For sure. I mean, you mentioned there about, you know, the important thing was these very high standards sort of across the board. But like in terms of sound and or aesthetics or whatever, like what were your non-negotiables? Sound for sure. We chose to use, we chose to use D&B. Um, we we have a great relationship with them. We're actually this year we're we're doing a, a a much greater thing with them in the warehouse where we have a surround sound experience with, and we're also working with Weirdcore Aphex Twins, visual um, genius to create something special in there. But for me, when I was looking at sound, it was it was about a sound system that told the truth, could operate outdoors, and could be heard at perhaps a lower volume but with greater clarity and I think DMB is a is a wonderful sound system it's also used by Craftwork which was seductive enough in its own but key for me was to have that same sound system all over the site in every stage in different formats and to be able to achieve something that doesn't piss the neighbours off too much but also excites the dance floor um, and it's not easy to do certainly the pissing off the neighbours bit it's a wonderful sound system and that so that was you know and then obviously drinks and food and all the rest of it tents and security and it's not complicated actually really Mm. as i said if you if your main aim is to do something warm and significant then all roads lead to the same place really if your if your aim is to just have people arriving in a turnstile situation and make loads of money then then your decisions are thus it's fairly straightforward. Yeah, I think I read you. You also put a lot of effort into the booths and how they. F- yeah, I suppose in a sense I wanted the. Um, uh, well, firstly, as as someone who plays vinyl, I wanted it to be able to be possible to, to play vinyl, which is can be incredibly complicated, especially nowadays at festivals. I suppose they're nightclub booths in a way. The monitoring, the experience for the DJ, privacy for the DJ, having some boxes where you can put your records. Just making it comfortable for the performer. It's quite clear to say that the, the, the more comfortable the performer is, the, the better the performance will be. It's not rocket science. I suppose, in a sense, it's the relationship between achieving that and the money it costs. For me, it was more important to achieve it first and then talk about the money it costs, really, rather than stopping short of achieving the perfect setup. It does cost money. In the same way, it costs money to have the sound um, correct o- oversight. Especially nowadays, all roads lead, lead to money, don't So you're the sort of dreamer on the team? I'm definitely a dreamer, certainly. I'm certainly not a businessman, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, during the festival, obviously you're playing multiple times, different types of music, etc. What else are you doing? Are you, what's, what's sort of Craig Richards? Panicking. Yeah. Well, trying to sleep and trying not to sleep, I suppose, is one of the things. But also trying to get round and see everyone and hear everything and I realise from the few we've done that it's not possible to do that and I don't get to say hello to people I don't know and people I do know but I'm trying to be as present as possible and, and, and experience as much just it just in assessment as much as anything but you know getting around is important and and that does involve not sleeping too much trying to be in the background I suppose I don't really like to be at the front too much so pottering around in the background having a look at what's going on is good for me and playing as much as I can, which keeps you busy, and it also means that everyone around me knows where I am. They can come and find me there rather than the, the eyes are that I might have disappeared. <laughs> and you said, mention the last year. So last year, yeah, was the first one in three years mm. after two sort of successful first editions. You referred to it there as year one. Well, it felt like year one, I think, after three years. it felt, And it felt also that spiritually it pre- perhaps should be year one. You know, it was a clean start and... Off we go again, and we 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 honoured the lineup from cancellations, and because we felt that it, we should do, and also the, for the people who'd rolled over their tickets, they'd actually paid for that lineup. So certainly it wasn't a lineup that was out of date, but it was it was important for us to 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 honour that lineup. So perhaps last year was year naught, and this year is year one with a, with a new with a new uh, program of artists. 
I think in many ways we were just happy to get it over the line and over the moon to do it really and that that was our main energy that we just must do this and it should go really well and it and it did so it was cartwheels of joy really for us and just absolutely overwhelmed and overjoyed that we'd completed that part of the journey you know and and so I think perhaps this is year one maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong do you remember any sort of specific moments from last year where you just thought wow we actually did it we're actually here I think I think one of the areas of joy for me was the crowd itself it was such lovely people came and we were really worried about the heat and how people you know dehydration and what that might constitute and everyone behaved so brilliantly and looked after each other and just it was just such a brilliant crowd and I think that's the thing that I was most proud of really apart from just doing it and also the the performances and the commitment and the level of commitment from the from the artists and DJs and I really feel that everyone played their very best and and everyone was very very um excited to be there you know every single person was excited to be there and especially after the, such a wretched period of time and not being able to go out you know and our, our um we did, we did a little campaign it was called let me out let me in and it, it was it really felt like that at one point there back there you know we were doing those sort of mad things where you, where you had to sit down and you weren't sure if you're going to be locked down or going out or if you bought a ticket to something that was actually going to happen it was a really confusing period which i think only time will, will allow us to look back on that and actually sort of really well register it really in a way it was a crazy period so i think part of the celebration was being loosely out of that period in a way even though we we all we all now realize that we're not yet out of that period we're still recovering and gathering speed from that time but it, i suppose I, you know if i have to say one thing it was just to do it just to, just that it finished and everyone was happy and there was such a brilliant sense of achievement that came from it yeah i mean it definitely did have a very loyal following immediately which is pretty rare for a professional for that at least to continue sort of over a number of years yeah, it must feel great to have to feel like you have such a loyal following who will follow you. Well, I suppose if yeah, as the opposite of no following is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting to me, given how many dance music festivals there are. The last thing you think, people think, oh, we need another one, but actually, one it does seem to have really hit the mark in terms of quality, in terms of type of programming that maybe you couldn't get in that consistency at a festival. Yeah, well, that's nice to hear. I suppose loyalty is is the is is a, is is the, is the main aim in a way. I mean, when you think of the, the way people talk about Glastonbury or free rotation, you know, there's an intense sense of loyalty to these things and devotion, if you like. I suppose that's the main aim in a way to try and encourage a yearly commitment in people. And and but you can only do that if you deliver. I suppose you could argue there's no point in starting a festival where it's considered oh no, not another one. Yeah, I mean, I'll probably be better equipped to answer those questions in the future, really. Sure. In a way, at the moment, we're just sort of almost just muddling through. But I think a lot of it came from my record box and just stuff I know is good. And and I suppose like anything, when you go out to DJ, you hope that everyone will think your records are as good as you think they are. If you do that, you succeed. If everyone thinks, if, if, if no one's impressed with what you're playing, then you're not going anywhere. It's the same as any products, really. Yeah. You know. And we're sitting here, you know, roughly a month. How old are we? So soon. Until year two, year one, uh, how in 2023, year whatever one. you want to call it. How are the stress levels? How's everything? How, you know, how is the preparation going? I think it's going all right, really. I think, uh, you know, this uh, ticket buying has become a later thing, you know. It's, 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 it's so, And obviously this awful thing, cost of living, that we all have to think about and we're all involved in now means that, you know, people are skinned. If you've got a mortgage, your mortgage has gone up. It's not. It's 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 a it's a financial commitment to go to a festival to get there to get back and then whatever you do when you're there, you know. So it's not so easy for everyone to come along this year. And it, but I feel I feel like we're getting there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's looking good. Ticket tickets are moving. Preparations are moving. We're just going to try and make it better than it was last year. And I'm looking forward to it. I mean, seems like it's going to be hot. Maybe if I say that, I'll jinx it. Perhaps it'll rain. No one talks about the rain anymore. <laughs> yeah. The rain was like, am I going to have to wear wellies? Now it's, am I going to have to bring a sun umbrella? Yeah. So you mentioned the collaboration with Weirdcore, Apex Twins, Visual Artist, and the D&B thing in the warehouse and many other tweaks. No, not necessarily, actually. I mean, I think, you know, we're still representing. We had, last year, we had another stage outburst, which went really well. We've made some more sculptures. I've done some more. Yeah, made some different sculptures. Yeah, we're just trying to make it better than it was last year. I think that's all you can probably hope to do. So no surprises, really. I mean, just polishing, mm. enhancing. 
yeah well yeah what is the art element of the festival like these days how does it sort of what's the relationship with the music how do you see that oh it's been mainly my work in the future i'd like to think we commission other people's work and you know that's that's very important to us actually at the moment it's coming out of our till we don't really have any sponsorship we haven't really had much benefactorial help or anything like that so it's been mainly about what comes from the till and what we can afford from the budget so i would say it's been quite limited so far in terms of our ambition we'd like to do a hell of a lot more and each year we do more and we build more things we're, we're very lucky we can store all of the sculptures and all of the props and things we've made at the festival and we're as i said earlier we're also really lucky that we built things which remain there so um that's that's quite unusual for a festival yeah, I would say we've done as much as we can afford within the confines of independence and we hope to do more, you know, without taking sponsorship or money from people we don't want to take money from. That's what I was going to ask. Is the no sponsorship thing, is that sort of founding principle? I wouldn't say it was a founding principle, but I, I know that if you if you muddy the water with the wrong money, then you might as well take all of the money. You know, it's not about taking money from one. You might as well just take it all. Then you lose your independence and you lose your way, actually, I think. So I think it's been... I'm not sure we ever had a plan or an ethos, but it, one of the one of the aims was not to get into bed with the wrong people and to try and do as much as we possibly could alone and so we could um, retain our integrity and, and, and keep our vision focused on, the, on one oak tree rather than a forest, you know. Thank you for listening to this RA Exchange with Craig Richards. You can also watch snippets of this interview on our YouTube and social channels. The track you heard in this episode is Craig Richards' remix of The Third Room. Many, many thanks to Carlos for the awesome interview, Craig Richards, of course, for his time, Ben Price and the Houghton Festival Management for facilitating, Sophie Mizrahi for filming, Rose Manson for editing assistance, and everyone on the RA crew for helping make this happen. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. If you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear on the podcast or stories you'd like to share, please send us an email at exchange at ra.co. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.